FromTheHeart.org Radio, in collaboration with Mayo Clinic, you are listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Hello, I'm uh, Rob Samara, and the Vice Chair of Cardiovascular Diseases at the Mayo Clinic, and I'm happy to have with me today my good friend and colleague, Dr. Bernard Gersh, who's a professor of medicine. And Bernard, we're here today to discuss uh, the, the 2011 HOCAM guidelines in the process that you chaired. And it strikes me when looking at the guidelines that they're about as heavy as a baby, but they take about three times longer to produce. <laughs> Is, t- tell us the process of how you sat down with, uh, with the 2011 guidelines. It's, I think you're right. It, it, it's a difficult process because, uh, after all, guidelines uh, are a consensus. You have a lot of strong opinions around the table. Um, uh, I think, the, I don't know who it was who said that uh, I often have strong opinions even if I don't agree with them. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, is a, it is a complex process. Now, what made it more difficult in terms of the guidelines for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is this is not an area where there are a lot of randomized trials. There are almost none. So that unlike the primary and secondary prevention guidelines and the STEMI guidelines, where you have a huge database from which to derive class one, two, and three recommendations, we don't. We just don't have trials in this disease, and we're not likely to have trials. So it really is uh, a consensus. So so uh, tell us about when the process got started and what were the major issues you faced as you started to compare it to the guidelines as they were last yeah. published, which I think was 2008? or the previous the, These are actually the first, the first guidelines, uh, ACC, AHA. What was published previously was a consensus statement. Oh, okay. So these are the first guidelines. Um, the whole process took a little longer than we would have liked. It took about 20 months, but about three or four months was related to the publication process where there were some delays. So effectively, we finished... I think our first meeting was uh, March of 2010 at ACC, and we finished June, July 2011. Part of the last two or three months is responding to the 800 or so comments, good comments, I might add, from 40 outside reviewers. The real issues that we had to deal with, the most controversial, I think, uh, was or is... um, septal reduction therapy, namely in the patient who's failed medical therapy, alcohol septal ablation versus surgical myectomy. That we had to deal with. We really had to address genetics. Um, And the third area, which wasn't controversial because there's just so many gaps in our knowledge, is risk risk stratification for sudden cardiac death. Uh, I mean, we very quickly came to a consensus, which was that the only way to prevent sudden cardiac death is the ICD, but we really don't have good methods of risk stratification, and that was one of the areas that we left as um, a, a real area for future research. So as there's not a lot of randomized trials, particularly in the, in the area of, uh, of therapies... I think there are, in terms of mechanical therapies, none. There are none. And given that centers have different experiences and expertise with a given therapy, how do you make recommendations when perhaps the expertise in septal ablation in one center and myectomy in the other center. So how do you work into experience and expertise when making these recommendations? Rob, that, that's, really, that's really a good point, actually. It, it, it's a key. And we did argue about it. And it's difficult because coming from the Mayo Clinic, we are a center that does both procedures. We have a huge surgical experience, one of the largest in the world. 
And obviously, we may see the management a little differently from others. Um, interestingly enough, in Europe, the ability to do surgical myectomy has been lost. It's all alcohol ablation, and in fact, there is a move in Europe now to restart or uh, reopen or develop surgical centers. So mm -hmm. there are big differences. What we felt from the beginning, and everybody was in complete agreement, is that hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, although we say it's one of the most con common monogenetic diseases, occurs in about one in 500 people, the average cardiologist is not going to see many patients. And therefore, we emphasize that the care of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy should be in centers that have expertise in the management of this condition. Ideally, that do both surgery and alcohol septal ablation, that have the availability of all the imaging studies and genetic counseling, which is really important. So we uh, emphasized throughout, not just uh, the Hokum Center, but we also pointed out that it's, it's really, that volumes are important, as we've seen in other forms of PCI, that volumes are really important. It's, it's difficult to put a number. I think we used 50 procedures, mm -hmm. but that's a bit arbitrary, but really to emphasize that these patients should be taken care of in recognized centers. And, and also a, another example of the heart team taking care of the patient. Yes, yes. So, so that, as you mentioned, the genetic counselor um, all, all the the, surger, the surgeons, the cardiovascular uh, cardiologist, et cetera, really taking care of the patients together. It's it's very much as we discussed in one of the other interviews, a little bit like the approach to Tabby, right? The heart team, right? You know, so without randomized trials, there's not a lot of class one recommendations. A lot of the class one recommendations are more the standard things that haven't changed over time, including pharmacologic treatments. Was there discussion about? Um, when one goes to, when one fails standard pharmacology and goes to these uh, I think the discussion sort of started at that point, and I would say it was a spirited discussion. We all agreed that um, medical therapy, pharmacologic therapy, is successful in a large group of people. The criteria for failure are very simple. The drugs don't work, or they work, but they're not tolerated. And then we have really two approaches, alcohol septal ablation and uh, surgical myectomy. We also have the option of DDD pacing, which by and large through trials done here by Rick Nishimura, we feel that the majority of the benefit from DDD pacing is probably a placebo effect. In some people who are already going to have a defibrillator, it's useful to have mm -hmm. DDD pacing, but basically for failed medical therapy, we've got the surgical option, alcohol septal ablation. We did take the, the, the tack that the gold standard is septal myectomy in experienced hands where the operation can be carried out with minimal mortality. It's a 40, 50-year-old procedure. It has been revised. Uh, there have been some modifications to it made here at Mayo and elsewhere. Quite a large number of patients also require mitral valve procedures, not replacement, mm -hmm. but mitral valve reparative surgery. So we made that a 2A indication. We then said, for alcohol septal ablation, if the patient is not a good surgical candidate, then alcohol septal ablation is a 2A indication. Okay. It's an excellent alternative. The third, I think, really important recommendation we made was, if the patient is a good surgical candidate, 
And then the statement is, after thorough and balanced discussion, the patient does not want an operation. Then alcohol septal ablation is a 2B indication. The caveats, we said septal thickness greater than 30 millimeters probably won't work. Under the age of 40, we discouraged it. Under 20 or 21, I can't remember exactly, we said no septal ablation. The emphasis is on thorough and balanced discussion. And here, one has to trust one's colleagues uh, that, that it is a thorough and balanced discussion. Right. I mean, um, uh, because we do think that uh, septal myectomy is the gold standard for younger people who are active, who are likely to live, have a, a long lifespan. Right. You mentioned the, uh, the, the discussion about genetics. And you know, it's, mul- it's so, uh, uh, it's, there are many perspectives. There's the diagnostic perspective, there's the family perspective, there's the risk stratification perspective, and our hope that there'd be a genotype-phenotype correlation. Um, What does the average practitioner need to know about the genetics of Hokanee? Should we get testing or families be tested? If I could just uh, preface it just in regard to the previous discussion. We also did put in a a sentence or two to the effect that we need long-term studies of the late arrhythmic effects of alcohol septal ablation. We need those. I'm sure when they have a reiteration of the guidelines, we'll have that data now. Genetics, um, we basically made a class one indication for genetic counseling. It should be available to everybody. And routinely, um, all our patients in the hypertrophic clinic, cardiomyopathy clinic here, are offered uh, a genetic counseling. And first order Uh, relatives. uh, No, No. uh, what, what we do first is Screen them, they the they get right. it's screening. So the genetic counselor will advise on the screening. Okay. And then uh, the screening procedures for first-degree relatives are either regular echocardiography or the option of um, genotyping. The great advantage, and, and this is really where a genetic counselor is so very helpful because they can go into the detailed family history and explain the options, What I rather like, I think, about genetic testing is if you have a proband with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and they genotype positive, and they are the biological parent of that child, that child either has the disease or doesn't have the disease. And if they don't have it, they don't have the genotype, they don't have to go through years and years and years of echocardiographic screening. And so that's the attractive option. But obviously, if you can't identify a a genotype in one member of the family, then it it doesn't really help. Um, We, I think, called it a 2B, but said that for risk stratification, genetic testing has not panned out. Um, It might pan out for a particular family, but but our own data at the Mayo Clinic done from uh, Dr. Mike Ackerman's lab has shown if you take three, 400 consecutive outpatients, and you test them for the known mutations related to prognosis. Most people have a private mutation, right. and uh, there are very few right. of them. So gene- genotyping for prognosis, not yet. Any, anything uh, new, new or uh, interesting about other risk stratification for sudden death in this, uh, in well, this disease? Well, um, yeah, I think that MRI is certainly, certainly gaining prominence. We've published um, a paper from here showing that late gadolinium enhancement is a risk factor. Uh, There are, I think, two or three other studies that show that. 
Right now, we haven't used that in isolation as an indication for an ICD, but one may have a patient with one or two softer indications, and then you add in the MRI and evidence of scarring, and that's enough to justify an ICD. <clears throat> I think this is an area really uh, that needs further study, risk stratification for sudden cardiac death. The other very interesting discussion that we had was, let's say you genotype a patient, and they genotype positive, and the mother or the father has the disease. You do an echo, ECG, completely normal. How do we manage that patient? They have the gene. We don't know what the penetrance of it is. Uh, they want to play competitive sport. Well, they don't have the disease phenotypically, but they have a genotypically. So this is really an interesting right. area. Which, uh, which leads me to uh, our, our sort of final wrap-up, which is you chaired this group now very successfully. You've, you've got an opportunity between now and the next time. What information would you as the chair like to come out in the, in the next two, three, four years that would put some class one indications or, or, or firm up some of the conclusions that Well, that the one thing we realized that we won't have, we're not gonna have a randomized trial. Uh, we know the results of alcohol septal ablation in the short term. We know the results of myectomy in the long term. It would take something like 20,000 patients to be screened and followed for 15 years. We're never gonna have that trial. What we do need though, what we really do need is um, long-term follow-up studies of alcohol septal ablation. And I think this is a good area for what is being called comparativeness research, mm -hmm. comparative outcomes from excellent centers. And again, I would emphasize the disease is not frequent enough to be treated in isolation. It really needs to, these patients need to be seen in a center that has the expertise. I think the other area expertise and, and, and just the volume. The other area, I really would uh, look, look forward to the studies of genotype positive, phenotype normal patients. Right. How many of these patients and, and uh, that's are going to go on and develop right. the disease? And that's information we never had before. Right. Never, never had opportunities to Because we just didn't have the genotype. So I think that that's, that's an area that um, really needs to be developed further. And then I think the third area is what's the interaction with the common risk factors? In other words, what's the role of um, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, sleep apnea? How does that affect the Hokum phenotype? And uh, finally, I think there, there is this entity of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the elderly with the so-called sigmoid septum. Right. Technically, it's Hokum because it's LVH without a cause. I have a feeling that we probably, in time, we will find out that maybe that is not hokum, that it's a, manif a different manifestation of aging or hypertension or diastolic dysfunction. I've often wondered about those patients, and we'll learn more about that from the natural history. It's certainly uh, it's an interesting experience chairing a guidelines. Well, thank you very much for doing so, and thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Rob. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Talks with Dr. Bernard Gersh. Visit theheart.org to find out more.